This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt on the Cloth. This was my sermon from August 21st, 2022. I hope you enjoy. God bless. My scripture this morning is kind of continuing to stay, and no, it's not kind of. It's continuing to stick in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found on page 211 in your New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. Hear now these words from the book of Hebrews. You have not come to something that can be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even an animal touches the mountain it shall be stoned to death indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth. How much less will we escape? If we reject the one who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth. But also the heaven. This phrase. Yet once more indicates the removal of what is shaken. That is created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I'm going to read that again. Go back one more time, Ted. Let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. This passage is introduced by you have not come to, but you have come to. The first phrase is scary. It's a terrifying presence of God at Mount Sinai. Now I want you to remember this story. When Moses found himself at the presence of God, he trembled with fear, is what it literally says. And he 
took his shoes off because he was so afraid, because he was in the presence of the divine, and he knew that he was on holy ground. Now I've heard lots of preachers use that passage of scripture and literally started by taking off their shoes as they walked from the back of the sanctuary to the front of the sanctuary. While everybody's eyes were aghast as the funky looking socks the preacher would wear that day, missing the whole point that the person was trying to make the illustration of walking on holy ground. Now you're all welcome that I kept my shoes and socks on. But in the midst of this, this writer in Hebrews is trying to make sure you understand that even in the presence at Mount Sinai, the people were the, felt the fear of being in the presence of God. But not the fear like, I'm afraid of a scary movie. Have you ever had that moment when you're afraid that you're going to disappoint someone? Like, you're just not cut out to be enough for them. And there's a fear, right? Most of us get it in school. Whether it's if we're going to make straight A's for our parents, or if we're going to do a good job with our coaches, or whatever it is, we find ourselves having a fear of these people with respect. Because we don't want to, what's the phrase? Disappoint them. Moses comes to God at the presence at Mount Sinai, afraid that he was not worthy to be in the presence of God. The second phrase moves the reader closer to something new called Mount Zion. Now this is the newly refurbished and renovated city of the God heaven, the new Jerusalem, the place of innumerable angels and festive guard. It's like the Jesus, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. You know, I loved that part of the show. Mr. Rogers had such a way that made people feel comfortable, right? It was the tone of his voice. It was his demeanor. Everyone was welcome into Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He welcomed them with open arms and offered them something to drink and something to eat and participated with them as if they were human beings. Oh, I don't know. Something like Jesus would have said. This new neighborhood that is being introduced to the writer and to the readers and listeners of Hebrews is something beautiful to behold. The problem with this is the writer warns them, do not refuse the voice of the one who is speaking. For God's new kingdom cannot be shaken. Which speaks something to of our first century church where kingdoms rise and fall depending on who's in power and who has the most army, or who knows the most military tactics, who can enforce the most amount of fear. All of those kingdoms rise and fall. But God's kingdom will not. You have two different mountains. God's beautiful Mount Zion, which everyone wants to be at, 
And then God's beautiful Mount Sinai, where everyone's terrified to walk in the door. It's a Mount Zion becomes a metaphoric code, referring to the place where God resides, God's neighborhood. Here the writer even adds, uh, it's, it's a reference point where there's angels and heavenly beings and God's people, they all converge in joyous celebration. I, I think, honestly, I think the early church, I think this is where they get their understanding of heaven. You know, we, we struggle with this conversation. What is heaven? What does it look like? Most of the time we talk about it in such a way that we say, that's where we go meet our family, right? And we talk about it and we say something to the effect of, uh, there's angels there. Why do we know that? Well, we read scripture. And this is one of those places that says at the New Jerusalem, there's angels. And we read this throughout the whole New Testament. But the story's not about angels. It's about the worship while we're here on earth. It's not about the end of time. You remember that fancy word that I taught you a while ago, the eschatology of the end of an age? It's not that. It's, it is having bits and pieces of that. It's saying that in the place when you find yourself, whether it's at Mount Zion or at Mount Sinai, you need to pay attention to how you worship in that place. What is your posture in that worship moment? Some of you can remember church in the 80s and 90s. It was scary. Not necessarily the people in the pews, because for the for I felt like for the one time, we asked people's opinions and they gave it. And it terrified clergy. And we had what was literally known as, and books have been written called, The Worship Wars. When I was in seminary, there's a book written by the name uh, of, of an author by the name of Thomas Long called The Worship Wars. And then he comes up with the second book called Beyond the Worship Wars. It's in that place that we, uh, we have this conversation about what does worship look like. At the same time that Thomas Long is writing about that, you have all of these books being written about contemporary worship, whatever that means, and then all of this other stuff, the difference between ancient and modern worship, whatever that means. And there's a book called, by Martin Thalen, called Ancient Slash Modern Worship. And all of these authors are really just trying to attempt to recover a worship that restores reverence and the holy. And what you find out is the worship wars were about the style, not the place, not the heart. <clears throat> Thomas Long, the best part I got out of his book was this quote. Well, I got a lot of good things out of the book. I use it continuously. One of the things that I loved the most about it was this quote. Worship is not about strategy. It's about awe. It's about awe. 
This is a hard thing for churches to grasp. Congregations have split over the styles of music, over the styles of words, how we say the things that we do. But at the end of the day, it's just humans trying to find and grasp just something of the heavenly divine realm that we are looking forward to. Some it's through the styles of music. Some it's through the preaching styles. Some it's for the lights and whatever else. Brian Whitfield, and at the end, I, I would say that the worship wars really did kind of, I think they're still happening, but it's more like conflicts than wars. Nobody declared war in churches since probably 2010. And one of these liturgical scholars by the name of Brian Whitfield has a really good idea of what it looked like after the wars had started to go, and now we just have these little skirmishes within local congregations. He says this, using the book of Hebrews, I might add, that the final word suggests that we may reflect on the entire passage through the lens of our own life in worship. Like the readers in Hebrews, we do not come to stand at Sinai as we gather for worship. Instead, as we journey toward the heavenly Jerusalem, our worship provides, in Fanny Crosby's words, a foretaste of the glory divine. Our worship is preparation for our life in the city of God. For as we worship, that life breaks open to us even in the midst of time and space. Worship connects us with God, with angels, with the saints past and present who comprise, you remember from last week, that great cloud of witnesses encompassing us. Jesus becoming that mediator of this new covenant makes it possible that we have access and communion with God and moves our hearts to thanks and praise for the grace that we've received. He finishes his statement by saying, the goal of our worship is not entertainment, nor do we consume worship as a commodity. It's not something that you can check off. To get into heaven. To worship is to encounter God. To hear God's voice. And most importantly, to be transformed. True worship does not leave us as we are. At ease with illusions of our own power and significance. Rather, it makes us aware of the impermanence of all human lives and institutions. As he says, like Moses, bows down in awe before the permanence, before the might and splendor of our God who is a consuming fire. And I love that language there at the end. And I, and I just have to piggyback off of that that consuming fire. You know, growing up, you think that fire has a negative thing, and yet when you, those of you that work on farms know that it is a bad thing, but yet it can be a good thing. 
Sometimes you have to clear the field and do prescribed burning in order for other things to grow and have new life. It's not that you're wiping it clean. You're giving yourself a fresh start. And yes, fire can be destructive. But in this idea, they're using it in such a way that even the author in Acts would look at it as in God's consuming fire, wrapping God's beautiful tendrils of flames around us and providing us warmth and comfort and a sense of this divine presence that no one else can find in the world. And nothing else can provide except God. So we have this moment, this inspirational opportunity where we have the future that can say we stay in this place, in this mindset. And that's okay. For my, Mount Sinai is as respectable as Mount Zion. You can do both at the same time, according to the writer of Hebrews. But the goal then becomes, how do you create an environment where others can feel the presence of God and worship in awe that wraps them up like an encompassing fire? That church is our mission, our calling, and our mandate. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.